We are here at Camp Kotok, and I have a very special guest, Dennis Lockhart. Dennis, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I am, I'm retired from the Fed now for five years. I was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, and I'm currently a distinguished professor of the practice at Georgia Tech. Thank you. Dennis, from your time at the Federal Reserve uh, from 2017, excuse me, from 2007 to 2017, for much of the time, the Federal Reserve was not trying to fight inflation. It was trying to get inflation. Inflation was below 2%. It was trying to get to that target. How did you react? What was your reaction when in 2021 and then uh, quite explosively in 2022, the Federal Reserve not only you know got well above that target, but way, way, way above that target? Well, yeah, I think uh, those of us who lived through uh, the decade 2007 to 17 or even beyond to 2019 had to be <laughs> a little bit surprised that the, the tables were completely turned. The world had changed rather dramatically because in inflation uh, for us was a problem of getting it up. And then rather quickly, inflation made an about face and became a problem of uh, of peaking of 9% or higher and then having to get it down. So uh, th that was a startling change. In the, t in the period in which, in starting in, in 2020, in the, in the, the period in which uh, the Fed and Jay Powell were arguing that inflation was transitory, I viewed it as a plausible argument. So persistent inflation, and, and it's arguable that we've had an element of persistent inflation in the last three years, again, is a little bit of a surprise. It's been slow to normalize or regularize. It is coming down, but, but uh, slower than, than I expected. Mm. And you said the theory of transitory, that inflation was transitory, was to you plausible. I think that hints at the very intellectually honest position that you don't know. You don't know if it's transitory. You think it might be, you think it might not be, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, easy to say that it wasn't. But when you're at the Fed, you're making decisions about a, uh, an unknowable future. And that's why, you know, it might not make sense to say, oh, where's the tenure going to be in a year? 5%, 4%, 6%. We don't know. The best economists in the world don't know. The best investors in the world, they don't know if, if they're right. You know, they can uh, make, some, make some good returns. But it's very hard. And yet, you at the Federal Reserve, when you were there, and folks at the Federal Reserve now, have that responsibility. And you share your forecasts for uh, what, what inflation is going to be. P, what core PCE inflation is going to be, where the Fed funds rate even is going, what, what is growth going to be like? So what is it like where you yourself, you know, intellectually, honestly, no one knows. It's so hard to know. And yet it's your responsibility to, to make decisions uh, about that unknowable future. Well, you give it your best shot, <laughs> really, is what it amounts to. Uh, recognizing that uh, your forecast uh, could be radically wrong or at least off considerably. Um, and it's all conditioned upon economic uh, circumstances at some stage in the future, which are unpredictable, uh, financial conditions as well. Uh, but you, if it's your job, you have to g give your best opinion. Um, sometimes I think those forecasts are taken a bit too literally, and then there's a lot of blame put on the people making the forecasts. Um, it, it's it's not an easy job, and and they should be taken, I think, with uh, 
a, a great deal of skepticism that that's the way the world's going to play out. And when you say the forecasts are taken too literally, what do you mean? That the f- Fed uh, is actually going to deliver a point that is a specific number in the future. And uh, I think the criticism is valid when, it, when, when the forecasts are way off. And that means that the basic narrative that the uh, public officials, the policymakers believe is most likely turns out to be wrong. That narrative turns out to be faulty. But if it's if the forecasts are largely consistent with or broadly consistent with the um, the story that was embedded in the forecasts and it's reasonably close, then I think the forecast should be respected. Uh, so the theory of how higher interest rates can constrain economic activity or lower interest rates can stimulate economic activity uh, fair to say mainstream within the Fed mainstream outside of the, the Federal Reserve and economics in your tenure uh, over the ten, 10 years as as well as now how would you say interest rates actually affects economic activity because you know interest rates were very low were you know near zero uh, after the great financial crisis and the recovery was you know somewhat slow and sluggish interest rates right now you know at 5.5% and the economy uh, you know has been you know somewhat strong uh, over the past year or so uh, uh, what, what do you think it's a blunt tool that is the interest rate tool and its effect is variable over time there are times in which it's going to be more effective than Others, uh, we certainly know that at least uh, in the first incidents after a rate increase or a series of rate increases, there are interest-sensitive sectors that tend to react and many that don't. Um, Interest-sensitive sectors include, for example, uh, residential real estate or autos, where there's a fair amount of consumer borrowing that goes on based upon the monthly payment, which is based upon the interest rate. So some kind of effect occurs relatively quickly. The more subtle effects can take time and they can be different from period to period. The interview you're watching right now was filmed at the legendary Camp Kotak, an invitation-only retreat with prominent investors, economists, and wealth managers. Fishing, wine, and conversation are the hallmarks of this annual event held at Lean's Lodge in Grand Lake Stream, Maine, one of the state's most remote venues. I was very lucky to go to week one of this year's Camp Kotak, and I'm very grateful to David Kotak for inviting me and to Daniel DiMartino Booth for helping me greatly in being granted access to this exclusive event. Camp Kotak attendees are bound by Chatham House rules, where participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speaker, nor that of any other participant may be revealed. Accordingly, most of the information I heard will stay concealed. However, I did manage to get a few participants on the record, so Forward Guidance viewers will be able to hear my interviews with, among others, David Kotak, Daniel DiMartino Booth, Jim Bianco, Sam Rines, Leland Miller, as well as Dennis Lockhart, who from 2007 to 2017 served as the President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. A big thank you to the Global Interdependence Center and Cumberland Advisors for making this event possible, as well as to Lean's Lodge for sharing their beautiful acreage and making us feel right at home. Now, back to the interview. How does fiscal policy 
affect the Federal Reserve's uh, appropriate level, not its mandate, but its its uh, restrictive level. In other words, if fiscal policy is super loose, uh, an interest rate of 6% might even not even be restrictive. A restrictive rate would have to be higher. Likewise, if the you know, federal government, there's a severe recession, the federal government is not uh, you know being super stimulative, 0% is, is not even uh, loose. In my experience, um, the Fed stays out of fiscal policy, so therefore is not out there trying to advocate for one course of action or another. Very broadly, Chair Powell and others have said that that uh, the fiscal situation appears to be unsustainable, but basically Fed officials don't go much beyond that kind of very, <laughs> very general statement. And the, therefore, the fiscal policy becomes simply a factor in the makeup of the economy at any given time. And the Fed has to deal with whatever is that uh, economy and how it's trending or how it's evolving. And fiscal policy is a factor in that. Maybe not the only factor or the decisive factor, but certainly is a factor. So you, rather than view fiscal policy as something to be addressed specifically by the Fed, it's more wrapped up in the overall economic picture. Okay, that makes sense. Do you have a personal view, and if, if you, you don't, that's fine, about is fiscal policy stimulated now such that uh, you know higher for longer and, and uh, interest rates are going to be higher, our star is going to be higher uh, in, a, in a way that perhaps during your you know the middle of your tenure at the Federal Reserve, uh, fiscal policy wasn't, so 0% was appropriate. Well, I, I certainly we've had a, a period in which fiscal policy was very stimulative. Uh, the deficit is declining, but still remains at a very high level. So I think you would argue that fiscal policy remains net quite stimulative. It's certainly not restrictive in, uh, in terms of at least um, the motors of the economy, like consumer activity and such. Uh, so uh, its effect on the stance of policy today, I think uh, it's, it's a part of three or four different factors that are uh, continuing to propel the economy forward at a pace that is arguably uh, faster or uh, stronger than the Fed would like. The Fed is trying to slow things down, and fiscal policy probably is not helping on the margin. Mm, thank you. You so you were at the meeting where the Federal Reserve first decided to have an inflation target of two percent. Can you tell us about that meeting? What went into it, and why the Federal Reserve chose two percent? My recollection of the whole history is that. Um, Chair Ben Bernanke had been um, trying for years to convince the committee to become an inflation-targeting central bank. Uh, there were a number of other central banks that had taken that step. 2% had become the international standard. And I think Bernanke was conv convinced that, uh, that the Federal Reserve should also adopt that particular uh, position. I think he believed at the time, and I and and I accept the argument that explicitly stating a two percent target for inflation helps to anchor inflation expectations, and inflation expectations 
are a factor in inflation. It's important that that the public not believe that inflation is going to get out of hand and therefore change their consumption patterns for that re that reason. So in the meeting, um, I think he finally felt that he had the support he needed to bring it effectively to a vote. And I recall uh, Chairman Bernanke saying, now we need, need to, to settle, and part of this question is to settle on what is going to be our official index and our official uh, measurement of inflation. And he said, I uh, prefer the PCE deflator, which would be the index of personal consumption expenditures, not the CPI. Um, and the deflator is just another word for inflation index. And uh, we chose the headline number, which includes energy and food, even though in reality, um, I think much of the analysis is done with the core measures as opposed to the headline measures. But uh, it was a pretty dramatic uh, meeting in the sense that something that had been um, on the table for a number of years finally came to a head and a decision was made. And so when you joined the Federal Reserve in the uh, early 2007, the Federal Reserve was not an inflation central targeting bank. No, no. And, and so at that time, what did you target? When If you targeted low inflation, the dual mandate, what did that mean? It wasn't a specific number? It was not a specific number, or at least didn't have a reference number associated with it. It was whatever the committee, by consensus, believed represented low and stable prices. Mm -hmm. And so, but so it would, you know, how did how did they go about? I would say that? I would say there there were many who personally had adopted an inflation target. Okay. So okay. many who, if, if asked the question, and I remember my staff early on after I, I joined the Federal Reserve asking me my, what was my personal opinion of where inflation should settle out. And I hemmed and hawed and said, well, somewhere between one and a half and two percent. And uh, I'm sure many people at the table had a personal target in mind or a personal way of thinking about uh, the, what, where inflation should be. But as a, and it wasn't institutionalized, mm -hmm. and the decision to become an inflation targeting central bank therefore institutionalized it. And that two percent thinking, can you tell us a little bit about that and how it was a buffer? I, you know, ideally, uh, one percent inflation would be fine, but it's just about a margin for error and uh, uh, measuring error. Right? I often got questions. Uh, people often ask. Well, why not zero? And very serious people have argued for zero. You know, why not? If why isn't price stability just no changes in the broad price level over time? And what I learned in talking to some very able people on my economic staff is that the choice of two percent was far enough away from the threshold of deflation, and deflation. You know, central banks aren't terribly good at dealing with deflation. It's, it's a very hard problem, and it can be self-feeding. So you want to stay away from whatever you think is the threshold of deflation by enough that you have a, a reasonable cushion. Mm -hmm. um, the other point is 
inflation measurement is not so perfect as to to be absolutely certain that you're trending at 2% or 1.5%. You could be at 1.5% and in fact be uh, ba you know, basically flirting with deflation because it's just not that exacting. So 2% was a healthy cushion from the perceived deflationary threshold. And at the same time was a number that was low enough that over the long run, it would not be a major factor in the decision-making of households or businesses making investment decisions. So it's sort of, you know, it's the Goldilocks number that therefore isn't front of mind with every decision that a household or a business makes. Many factors of inflation that we've talked about, the Federal Reserve can uh, attempt to control with higher or lower interest rates, as, as well as the balance sheet. There are a lot of secular factors over which the Federal Reserve, as Jay Powell has said, uh, has essentially no control, such as uh, uh, reshoring, so you know, making more things in the U.S., which is more uh, uh, expensive on, on the margin, so more inflationary, uh, perhaps you know, oil, oil prices as well. Uh, do you ever think it could be possible that the Federal Reserve could adjust its inflation target to meet uh, potential secular inflationary forces? So, uh, you know, an inflation target of three percent or something like that, or it's two percent, but it's plus or minus, so it's anywhere from one to three percent. Well, it's been discussed a lot, and so the question you're asking has been raised quite often, particularly recently when we were in a period of high inflation. And bringing it down may, may become increasingly difficult. So it's a serious question. My own view is that much has been invested in the 2% target. That the American public has heard it enough now that they largely believe that's what the Fed is trying to do. And I don't think you would want to go into a mode in which you are adjusting your target, which is a long-term target, on average, 2%, adjusting it for whatever circumstances arrive every few years. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably not a good idea. It confuses the public. It uh, really is, is the kind of change that could be disruptive over, uh, over time. So I don't think raising the target, even though that could be a way of declaring victory, is, is likely to happen, nor is it probably a, a, the best policy decision. I do think that policymakers could emphasize a little bit more that they're really shooting for something in a range. They adopted in, uh, a couple years ago flexible average inflation targeting, so they're really actually looking for an average over time. So to talk a bit more about ranges as opposed to a point estimate of inflation, uh, but that's a nuance, really. That's a communications uh, issue more than anything else. So my overall answer to your question is uh, it's too much has been invested in this. It's the international standard. I just doubt that anyone will take the decision to raise or to change the inflation target. And just to clarify, so when I asked you, has uh, you know, changing the inflation target or adjusting it, and you said it's been discussed, would you say, you're saying it's been discussed by you know outsiders such as myself or people at the Federal Reserve have discussed that? 
The answer to that is both. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, very prominent economists have proposed uh, raising it or proposed four percent um, for a variety of reasons. Four percent was discussed as an inflation target when the economy was was relatively weak for that period from two thousand and nine to say 2019, uh, by raising the inflation target, you would be in effect spurring more activity. And uh, so it was viewed as a, an answer to a, a, an economy that was underperforming. Uh, arguably today, we have an economy that's overperforming. And I remember in one or two meetings, some of my colleagues raised the idea that maybe the inflation targeting, the target should be raised. Uh, there was one particular president who was an advocate of that uh, that position, but it, but it never really got to be seriously uh, considered. Thank you. Uh, well, it's it's getting dark and uh, the bugs are are flapping around. The bugs. So so, so bugs th- are not a feature here. Yeah, they're, the bug, they're yeah. bugs. Yeah. So uh, I've got a, f- a final question for you. So it's my general understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, recently with the Federal Reserve's policy of, of balance sheet uh, being a tool of quantitative easing or quantitative tightening, that policy should be moving in the same direction. So uh, if Federal Reserve policy is easy, it should be easy in that. Uh, in, in other words, if Quantitative easing should occur when the Federal Reserve is cutting rates or when they're at zero, and quantitative tightening should be occurring when uh, interest rates are not above zero, or, or, uh, not zero, or or rising. Um, and so, you know, last year interest rates were rising. The Fed rose rates as it uh, enacted quantitative tightening and its balance sheet expanded. Uh, do you think uh, in the future that policy will continue? And if not, why? Well, um, it does appear to be very logical on the surface that. If you have two basic tools, one is the interest rate tool and the other is the balance sheet, so quantitative easing or tightening, that they ought to be consistent. They shouldn't work at cross purposes. And that has been the assumption, I think, uh, for a long time. That doesn't mean that there couldn't be a short period in which one catches up with the other, and it would generally be the balance sheet catches up with the interest rate positioning or stance. But I, uh, one of the presidents recently um, argued that, that uh, it might be very sensible to continue to let the balance sheet decline, um, which would obviously be a, a form of tightening, uh, even after the Fed may have decided to cut interest rates or certainly to pause. Uh, and... Uh, that is basically telling me that there is a school of thought that's developing within the Fed, conceivably within the Fed, that the objective to get the balance sheet down to a more normal, if you use that word, or uh, to a, a level that is more comfortable mm-hmm. is an end in itself. And therefore, they might very well tolerate a situation where those two policies seem to be contradictory. That could happen in the future. So I wouldn't rule that out. It's an interesting twist because you would think that you'd never want two big policy levers to be operating against each other. But uh, it may be now that getting the balance sheet down to a, a, a more manageable and, and 
how should I put it, just a more comfortable level is uh, becoming uh, an end in itself. So quantitative tightening might continue if the Fed Reserve cuts interest rates. Uh, when you say to a normal level or to a comfortable level, what's uncomfortable about $9 trillion? What's uncomfortable about, about large amounts of quantitative easing? Is it an economic thing, financial stability? Uh, does it set a precedent that is perhaps uncomfortable? Well, what's uncomfortable, but first, it's, uh, it, it's in an unknown territory. And the first time we went through an, a period of quantitative uh, easing, we got to, I think, $4.8 trillion or something like that. And that was unknown territory. Part of it is you just don't know what effect that's having really on the financial system and ultimately on the economy. And secondly, it means that the balance sheet is extremely heavy in bank reserves, which um, in many cases do not translate into actual loans and out and actively working in the economy. Um, and it, the lion's share of those bank reserves are excess reserves. They're over and above what is what the bank needs or is, requires. So there's just a lot of reasons why um, you, you inflated the balance sheet, uh, in this case, uh, for emergency reasons to offset the, the shock that occurred when COVID hit. And once that emergency has passed, it's sensible to try to get down to something that is smaller rather than take all the risks that operating with such an uh, inflated balance sheet or a, let's just say a, a ballooned a balance sheet represents. And so I think there is a strong, strong impetus to get that uh, balance sheet down to, to, to a smaller level. Dennis Lockhart, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. <laughs>